Craig is very sick as well as Ken. So please keep them in your prayers that they would get healthy quickly and that uh, none of the people who have been around them would contact any sickness as well. Uh, we're missing a number of people tonight because of ill health and various sundry other reasons, so please keep them in your prayers. The title of this message is The Deceitfulness of Sin, and the New Covenant portion is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 13, uh, verse 13 through Hebrews 4, verse 2. Last week was relatively long message with a number of points. This will be a relatively short message, and it will be pointless. And that way, that way we will even out uh, matter of fact, there were so many points last week, the next 17 messages will be pointless to get to the three-point message. When Noah emerged from the ark, man was commanded to participate, to be involved in governing himself. Prior to that, God was the sole judge, jury, and executioner. After Noah, God said, he who sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. Even to the most egregious sin, God was now deferring to man. That authority birthed a variety of political systems, monarchies, democracies, oligarchies, constitutional republics, so on and so forth. Last week I put our particular political situation in a, in a historical context which revealed a repeating cycle of evil. A man will compromise his beliefs for the sake of political expediency, and with each compromise, the next one is easier to make, and the next one is easier to make. It's incremental. He doesn't immediately jump from one pole to the other pole, it's done in increments. Well, I've already done this. This is not that, that much more. And we see this happening throughout the evolution of laws that are designed to govern a society. Little increments that in, encroach upon our freedoms. The corruption of ideals for the sake of expedience is not, is not reserved solely for political systems of government within the world. The body of believers suffers the same temptations and has all too often succumbed to that temptation. We have monarchies within the body of Messiah where one man is the ruler. We have oligarchies, for instance, like the Catholic Church that has a group of cardinals that elect and can recall a pope if necessary. We also have constitutional republics, 
groups that are led by a group that is governed or constrained by a set of bylaws which act like a constitution restricting the things that they can and cannot do. The body of Messiah has evolved systems of leadership that are quite similar to those that are in the world. Some denominations, in succumbing to the pressures of the world, have taken exception to Yeshua's words that no one comes to the Father except through the Son. Not everybody believes that. Not all believers proclaim that. In fact, there's a growing group. It may even at this point be... It could be approaching a majority. They declare there are many paths to God. The entirety of the liberal church is is not of the mind that Yeshua is... They don't consider Yeshua exclusive. That there is one God, but many paths that lead to him. Uh, this is not a straw man. I've had these conversations with people, and they are unabashed in their declaration that Yeshua is not the only way. Do the noises in my head bother you? Sometimes they escape. Fornication, homosexuality, abortion is finding greater acceptance in some denominations of people who proclaim the name of Yeshua. Once we started discarding God's Torah, his instructions, his law, if you wish, that opened up the gates to a path that leads to destruction. One clear conclusion is revealed as we take a promenade through history. Man is simply not up to the task of governing himself. We fail at almost every turn. Today's message will not be new. It'll be reinforcing what most of you who attend here already know and understanding. But reinforcing beliefs is not a bad thing, especially in a day when those beliefs are under continual attack. The view of God within the church has changed during different uh, ages. It is vacillated between two extremes. On the one hand, we have an angry God who is unapproachable, unforgiving, always, always mad. And on the other hand, we have a loving God who forgives all and holds no one accountable for anything they do. Neither of these positions are true in isolation when looked at only, when only looking at that, that particular situation. He is, in fact, both of these. God's mercies are great, as is his wrath. The, uh, Deuteronomy, Hebrews, both declare that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is a consuming fire. And that statement 
refers back to the two sons of Aharon, who approached God in a way they thought was okay, but actually wasn't. They had deluded themselves. And when standing before reality, they were reduced to cinders. They were consumed by the divine fire. Truly, God forgives many actions in this world. But there are also actions that will not be forgiven in this world or the next. God is both. The message of church today is primarily focused on those portions of Scripture that make us feel good. And I'm not only referring to the plethora of health and wealth preachers whose opulent lifestyles rival that of Herod. Their, their words exempt believers from God's wrath by simply ignoring the Scriptures that reveal the consequences for behavior that strays from the instructions God gave to man. We don't deal with those. Yeshua took care of those. And we only deal with the pleasant promises, not the promises that are unpleasant. However, although man's focus is subject to change, God doesn't change. He's the same. And he has not compromised his instructions to man, nor has he ignored the consequences for straying for those, uh, from those laws or instructions. To those who believe that there are no consequences for bad behavior, I would refer you to Gan Eden. We don't live there anymore. This is not paradise. Hallelujah. This, our current life on this planet doesn't resemble paradise at all, from what I read. The first man disobeyed God, and all men since have been suffering the consequences of his decision. God hasn't forgotten them. God's instruction that Adam should not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge was not the curse. It wasn't his instruction that was the curse. It was man's disobedience, his rebellion against that, that curse that caused the creation and man himself to be cursed. The instruction was not a curse. We no longer live in paradise. We no longer have access to the tree of life. And death is still a consequence of sin. And before the Tanakh given at Sinai, after the Tanakh given at Sinai, and in the Brit HaDashah, the New Covenant. We all sin. But we all die. Peace is far from us, and there is no rest. We eat by the sweat of our brows. There's nothing about this place that resembles anything in Gan Eden, which is a an existence that I can't even imagine. I, there is nothing in my experience that, that allows me to even remotely understand the condition of life within that garden. 
when the natural proclivities of species are discarded because they're not necessary anymore. The lion has no need of the lamb for food, and so they lie down together in peace. They exist and absorb the light of God's presence and are sustained. Lions are not like men. They don't kill for fun. They kill to sustain, to satiate a need, food. But if they are already satiated, there is no need. There was no death in the garden. Nothing had to die that something else could live. There was peace. There was rest. And that peace and rest is far from us now. From the moment of Adam's expulsion, mankind has existed in varying degrees of separation from our Creator. God's grace has revealed a path that we can return to Him. But that path is not one of our choosing. It, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it results in death. God laid out a very specific path with a very specific set of strict instructions on how to remain on that path. It is a path because it has boundaries from what is on either side. We can determine where it is and whether or not we're on it. If we don't follow those instructions, we will fail in our attempt to, to return to him, to make shuva. My preaching over the last two years has been guided by a single encouragement and warning to the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. The Lord gave me the instruction, strengthen what remains. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent or return. They were deluded. Their works revealed their insufficiencies. They were deluded about and, and believed what others said. Oh, this church is on, on fire. It's alive. And the Lord came to them and said, hmm, not so much. Actually, you're dead. Historically, the single greatest controversy in the body of Messiah has revolved around the word salvation. It's, to be honest, Jan spoke about a Chinese uh, prayer that was or song, poem, that, that she read from. Persecuted churches don't have the same arguments we have. They simply don't have the time. They're under attack physically all the time, and they, they have no time for silliness, for foolishness. This argument 
is 2,000 years old within the body of Messiah. And it deals primarily with, is salvation a result of faith or works? Man's separation of faith and works has done a great deal of harm. The value of history is that it enables us to view the behavior and the consequences for that behavior in the past, which allows us to modify our present behavior to avoid avoid consequences and future mistakes. We can see what was done. We can see the result of what was done. And so we can modify that behavior so that we don't end up in the same shape as the people before us. If we avoid that, we never learn. Every generation has to reinvent everything, all knowledge, over and over and over again. Hebrews chapter 3 exhorts us to remember the sins of Israel, and more specifically the sins of that generation that left Egypt. The exhortation is that we would not repeat their behavior and incur the wrath of God as they did. Simple, makes sense. Hebrews 4 encourages believers. The promise of God is that there remains for every believer a Shabbat Shabbaton, a Sabbath of rest, a complete rest, which was the condition of man in Gan Eden. There's only two holy days that, are, that bear the moniker Shabbat Shabbaton, the seventh day and Yom Kippur. All others are called Sabbaths. Only two are called Sabbaths of Sabbaths. The, the, uh, the superlative in Hebrew, doubling the word. But this blessed hope of returning to Gan Eden, this Shabbat Shabbaton, this rest and peace, is preceded by a warning in Hebrews chapter 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, let us fear. God is commanding us to be afraid. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they did also, referring to the generation that left Egypt. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united with faith in those who heard. All agree that faith is the linchpin in this particular verse. The problem arises, our our, Our faith is hinged, our salvation is hinged upon faith. The problem arises when we start to define the word faith. The word faith has different meanings in different languages. And so if we're speaking English, it has one meaning. If we're speaking Italian, we have another meaning, Spanish, whatever, Russian. That word faith has nuances in every one of these languages. And they are useless in trying to understand what God is saying in the scriptures. Sorry. Yeshua didn't speak English. He didn't speak Greek. He didn't speak Latin. He spoke Hebrew. So in order to understand what is 
that in order to understand how this linchpin works in this hinge mechanism, we have to understand that word faith in the Hebrew, not the English. Hebrews 11.1 1 provides a definition of faith for us. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I read the best example of this definition of faith a few months ago. A hundred people come out to pray for rain during a drought. One man brought an umbrella. Singularly, the best definition or story, example, illustration of Hebrews 11.1. 1. His faith affected how, what he did, how he acted. The man who brought the umbrella had faith. The assurance that the rain he hoped for would come. The others just had a hope. They didn't really believe. If their prayers were answered, they're all soaking wet. The word emunah, or faith in Hebrew, comes from the root amen, or amen, actually, in Hebrew. It means to be firm, to be truthful or trustworthy, to believe with certainty the assurance the author of Hebrews understood Hebrew. That's why we end our prayers with the word Amen or Amen. A statement that we believe in faith that what we are asking for, we shall receive. In fact, we're commanded to believe that what we're asking for, we shall receive. I have faith in Yeshua's return. Okay, there's a, there's a dozen people here who are saved. Excellent. The rest of you, we have a mikvah. We can, we can fix this. I therefore try to live in a way that he will find pleasing when he comes back, so that I hear the words, well done, true and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll give you charge as much. Enter into the rest of your Lord. There's that word rest again. My faith directly affects the things that I do. In fact, it is the source of all my good works. Sin reveals those times when I, those times I sin reveals those times when my faith wanes when it becomes weak, when I no longer consider the consequences of my actions. A little story, I was coming back here from an 18-hour day. I was, I was bone-weary. I'm, I'm coming through the parking lot, and this young lady says to me, do you have any food? Now, I did not want to stop. All I wanted to do was go home and collapse. I didn't want to stop. 
I didn't want to open up the food bank. I didn't want to let her pick up a few cans of food and, and leave. I also didn't want to call Winston and let him know I was doing it. <laughs> I didn't think he'd mind too much. It took an extra 10 or 15 minutes for me to get back. I was compelled by my faith to do that. If I had not done it and went home, I'd have been up all night as the Holy Spirit grieved me. See, if you grieve the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will grieve you back. There is reciprocity. To the Jewish mind, there is no daylight between faith and works. It's the same word, almost. I mean, it. the actions of a righteous man flow from his faith in a righteous God. It's, it's really simple. The controversy is primarily found in the letters of Paul, James, and Hebrews. The argument exists we analyze, we look at these concepts individually in isolation, and we never integrate them back together. There's nothing wrong with analysis, taking something apart, separating it to view how it functions in isolation. But we must, if we're going to acquire wisdom, reintegrate those, those systems, those workings, to see how one part is affected by another operation. This is true in chemistry. It's true in mechanical engineering. Things have effects on what is around them. And it can change the operation of that system from when that system works in isolation. Words and paragraphs are taken out of context depending on your your belief and your desire, which invariably results in error. These letters were written to individual churches that faced very specific problems. And those letters addressed those problems. Paul wrote to those who were being told that their salvation was based on how they behaved, on what they on what they did. He therefore stressed the importance of having faith in God first for your actions to have any value to you. James in Hebrews addresses those who corrupted Paul's teaching. Second Peter chapter 3 verses 14 and 16 describes that the corruption. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord regarding salvation. So he's addressing the issue I'm, I'm addressing today. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, also wrote you, as also in his letters, speaking of them, of these things, speaking in them of these things, in which 
Some of those things are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do the rest of Scripture, to their own to, toward their own destruction. Be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. It's a dire warning. And we have a 2,000-year-old historical document that tells me Paul's words were distorted in the first century. They're being distorted in the 21st century. And if the Lord tarries, they'll be distorted in the next century, too. There were some who isolated Paul's words on faith, discarding all other scripture. And they determined that nothing we do here in this world matters. It just doesn't, it has no bearing on anything in the world to come. Well, the vast majority of God's words that he writes down in the word of God deal with our behavior here, not in the world to come. I, I don't, simply don't understand how you would make that determination. But they produce such a dichotomy between faith and works that as long as you have faith that God exists, you're okay and you're saved. Do we have, does that exist today? Of course it does, the universalist church. One God, many paths to him. As long as you believe in God, you're saved. Doesn't matter how you do, what you do, whatever. Everything's okay. The Bible tells us not everything that man does is okay. Reference is once again the Garden of Eden. We don't live there anymore. James addressed that specific condition. You believe in God? Mazel tov. The devils also believe, and they tremble. Your belief in God doesn't distinguish you as good as opposed to evil. They're called devils, for although they believe and know there is a God, they choose to disobey him. James attempts to bring to memory the definition of emunah. Our faith spurs our behavior. Our behavior reveals our faith. The, the two circle one another with God at the center. James chapter 2, 1, 18 Someone might say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith through my works, through what I do. Verse 20, faith without works is dead. The same condition as Sardis, where we began this little journey. You think you're alive but you're dead. 
If someone comes to you and he's cold and he's hungry, and you say, be warm and fed, without giving them what they have need of, will that faith save you? It's a rhetorical question. James is skeptical of a person's sincerity apart from his action. That's why I was compelled to open up that food bank, even though everything was telling me, go home and go to sleep. I had no choice there. There was a compulsion from my faith in God to do this, and I slept well. I did not have this little voice on my shoulder all night long going, you're a jerk. Maybe the Lord doesn't call you a jerk. I have a very special relationship with God. He has called me many things. I'm not even in this world, forget of it. I, I can't hear anything, I can't see anything, and I can't remember anything. I have been reduced to being pointless. Martin Luther resisted the Catholic Church for adding to the Word of God. He declared one of his most famous sayings, sola scriptura, only scripture. That's a nice thought. Only scripture should guide our behavior. Amen. However, that noble concept was compromised when he made works the enemy of faith. Consequently, he refers to the letter of J that James wrote as an epistle of straw. And he fought to have the epistle of James removed from the New Covenant during his life. Why? Because James did not agree with his understanding of the word faith. Do we have that happening today? Oh my God, yes. There are people, once again, so focused on works that they ignore faith, and they wish to see all of Paul's writings removed from the New Covenant. That exists today. I have had conversations with these people. No matter how much things change, they seem to say the same. We don't learn. Much of the theology of the modern church has been reduced to sound bites. Bumper sticker theology is inconsistent. It is out of context. And it is mostly inaccurate because of those two conditions. I'm sure everybody here has heard this, this phrase. We are saved by faith plus nothing. Okay. That statement is only true if the word faith 
is understood in its original context and the original meaning of the word Be'ivrit in Hebrew. Yeshua didn't say, they will know you by your faith. Yeshua said they will know you by your works, your fruit. If one's faith in God does not produce faith, uh, uh, fruit, or some kind of action, is that a saving faith? Faith without works is dead. Paul's own words reveal the integration of faith and works in his own life. If salvation is by faith plus nothing, why does Paul tell us that he works out his salvation with fear and trembling? Why is he afraid? Paul certainly had faith in Yeshua. He met him on the road to Damascus. If faith or a belief that Yeshua exists is the only criteria for salvation, what is he afraid of? I'll tell you what he was afraid of. Paul was a wretched man. His actions revealed that he was chief amongst sinners, and he knew that. He's the one who told me he was chief amongst sinners. He brought the believers to be murdered because of their faith. Those actions haunted them, just like the actions in my life haunt me. Never a day goes by that the things I've done don't come up somewhere. They're used by the devil. You really think God can forgive you for that? You don't forgive you for that. My singular hope, does your heart condemn you? God is greater than your heart. God's grace is greater than the condemnation that I lay on myself because I cannot forgive some of the things that I've done. They are unforgivable. Even as I'm defiled, as I, as I am remembering some of those things, as I'm speaking these words. Why does Paul tell us that he's diligent to walk out his life with God, focused on finishing the race, that he not be excluded after having led so many others to a saving knowledge of Yeshua. Least I be excluded, Paul writes. If it's only faith plus nothing, and we define faith as opposed to works, what is, what is he afraid of? Could it be that Paul, the Jew, understood that saving faith in God also requires action that is consistent with that faith? Could that possibly be? It's also reviewed, uh, revealed in Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 8. This is a litany of the faithful of God and the things that they did. Top 10 list in scripture. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. His faith in God caused him to do what God said to do. 
Why is that hard to understand? He believed God and he left his father's house to a land that God was shown because he had faith that God would bring him to a better place. So he obeyed. All the faithful acted on their faith. They believed God. They did what God said. That's why they're called the faithful. I simply, I'm not being purposely obtuse here. I simply don't understand what this whole controversy has been about. Obviously, it is substantive. It has lasted 2,000 years. And we're still discussing the same thing. And I simply don't understand on any level what this controversy is about. Abraham did not procrastinate when God told him to sacrifice Yitzchak. The scriptures say, and Abraham awoke early in the morning to do all that God commanded him to do. There was no hesitation. The faith of, the faith of Noah caused him to obey, and he built the boat. If he didn't act on his faith, he'd have drowned with the rest of humanity. His faith produced an action. This 2,000-year-old discussion is in a word, childish. It is the milk of the word, Hebrews 5, 12. By this time you ought to be teachers, but you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Leave the elementary teachings about Mashiach. Let us press on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Yes, we have faith in God. Yes, we have good works. Can we move on from those first two steps? The whole concept of a walk with God implies that there are more, that there are more than two steps. It's a walk. It's a continual motion towards God's presence. The things that bothered me when I first came to faith, I put aside. I don't think about them anymore. You know, it's like when I first started walking, I don't remember, but I'm sure I looked like everybody else. I'd take a step, fall over. I had to concentrate on how to walk. Then I learned how to walk. Now I can chew bubble gum and walk at the same time. My entire mind is not consumed with, okay, put this foot here. It comes natural. It's the condition I live in. I don't have to think about it anymore. I can now think about much deeper things, more consequential things. It's called growing in my faith. Infants do not fight wars. Wars are fought by the strong who are trained for battle. 
They're fought by the mature, who understand. The forces, the forces that are gathering to engage our faith are formidable. We are not in times of peace. As we remove ourselves from God, what rushes in to fill that void? Violence. We're seeing it every single day. I witnessed one of the most ruthless behaviors I have ever seen in a man. And I've been to war. I've seen some ruthless behaviors. This guy is walking down the street. He pulls a bat out of his pants, walks up behind somebody, and whacks him in the back of, a head, back of his head with a bat. I utterly ruthless. I, d I don't normally watch the news, but, you know, Mary has it on in the morning. I'm passing the TV set. And I can't help but watch this. I'm watching a video of a man, and you just watch him pull out the bat. And he, you know, he swinging for the fences. Who does that? He apparently didn't even know this man just decided to crack him in the head with a bat. Violence is just like in the days of Noah, which Yeshua says will return to. When the presence of God leaves, it forms a vacuum which is filled, and violence, Hamas, fills the earth with certainly in that time. The body of Messiah is being hindered from following God's instructions. Everything that every preacher ever said about this whole entire homosexual agenda is now going up before the Supreme Court. It's already been passed. That law, I assume, will be challenged. And it's going to require that pastors, rabbis, imams do certain things that they don't want to do that go against their faith. And apparently, there, this law indicates that there's no longer religious freedom, that religious freedom will no longer provide an exemption from doing certain things. Well, yeah, it will. Because I can simply refuse to do it. In fact, if you make me do something I don't want to do it, I guarantee you, you will regret it. Guaranteed, because I'll produce a service that'll be foul and disgusting. And I have the words to do it. We were prohibited from meeting. We're prohibited from voicing our opinion in certain places or certain distances from certain places. These encroachments, these I can't think of the word right now. I use it at the beginning. These compromises are incremental. You're just slicing off little parts until there's nothing left of our standards, nothing left of our freedoms.
There's nothing left to live for. And that's why so many people are feeling so desperate these days. What is the point? And we're seeing suicides going up. Because there's no hope. Forget about the assurance of hope. There's no hope. This message is as elementary as it gets. It's not, it's not a, a message on the body of, it's, it's, it's not the body of Messiah 101. This is the orientation, this is the introduction to the body of Messiah. It is, it is the most basic of all things. If I have faith in God, I will behave according to that faith I have. For well, that faith is dead. Let us put away these childish discussions. It won't happen in the entirety of the body, but at least in our own minds, let us put away these silly, childish, foolish discussions that seek to meet the minimum requirements in order to behold God. Rather, let us seek to serve him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul. Is that not the least and the most we can do for the one who laid down his life so that I could have life and life more abundantly? Should I accept that gift of eternal life and then seek to do the least amount that I can do to find it? Does that show my appreciation, my love? As the darkness gathers, let us be strong in our faith that our actions would reflect the righteousness of the God that we proclaim. Father, in Yeshua's name, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have spoken your words and you have put those words in our ears and you have caused us to hear them. Lord God, may those words spring up as a tree of life and bring life to our souls, to our hearts, to our minds. That we would walk a path in the midst of this darkness that is illuminated. That others might see. That others might believe. I thank you for the miracles that we can behold even during these times of great darkness. It reveals you have not left us. You have not abandoned us. That you are there. Open our eyes that we, we might see your presence in our ears that we may hear further your words. And give us the strength to finish this race in Yeshua's precious name. Amen.